and welcome to episode three of Hidden in Plain Sight or the HIPS podcast. This episode, we are looking to shake up your scene as much as we can because the topic of our episode is all about William Shakespeare or perhaps William Shakespeare. With me discussing this fantastic topic is writer and director, Dr. Peter Hodges, and our lovely friend and collaborator, Carol Paxton. Hello again, guys. Hello. <laughs> Hello again. Well, 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 we certainly have a very, very juicy topic, and I believe we're probably going to get lots of emails and letters right after this one. So since our last season, where we proved that Christopher Marlowe did not die in Deptford in 1593, but that we can actually date his correspondence to 1598. That, again, casts a bit of light on whether or not he wrote some of the works, if not all of the works, attributed to William Shakespeare, as we know them today. So then the question I think a lot of people have in their minds would be, if Christopher Marlowe was alive and well and still writing in 1598, what was William Shakespeare doing in all that time? Would you like to kick off on that, Peter? Well, I'd be very happy to. There is a lot that the Shakespearean scholars believe that Shakespeare was doing during the time that we assert that Marlowe was living in Flushing and trying to find his way back to England composing plays and presenting them to the queen and so forth. One of the things that the Stratfordians, and pardon me for using that term, but those of us in the authorship question sort of rely on these terms. One of the things that the academics often use to confirm Shakespeare's presence is something that was mentioned by Robert Greene in a pamphlet that he wrote in 1592. The pamphlet was titled A Groat's Worth of Wit. And in that, he included a letter to three other writers warning them about a fourth person that he considered to be a danger to writers in general. And this is the so-called upstart crow slash Shakespeare, who considers himself a Johannes factotum capable of doing anything. Now, this reference has been utilized to assert that Willem Shakespeare was present during the time that Henry VI was being written. And the assumption has been by the academics that this is proof that Shakespeare was already a member of the Admiral's Men at the time, which was Ned Allen's company and Henslow's company that originally performed Henry VI, and that this is somehow proof that Shakespeare had written Henry VI. At the time, this would have been what ultimately became Henry VI Part One, And it's a funny thing about this, because what it's basically asserting in this letter is that Shakespeare was some kind of robust actor that was shaking the scenery, if you will, making a big noise and presenting himself as necessary to 
completing anything on stage. And while he was doing this, he was also attempting to write. This is Green's accusation. The funny thing about this particular accusation is it's not the first time that Green made this accusation. He made a very similar one in an earlier pamphlet called Francesco's Fortunes. And when you put the two of them together, it soon becomes clear that we're not talking about somebody named Willem Shakespeare. We're talking about an actor who was so noticeable and so bombastic that it was impossible to escape his influence. And Green was very jealous of this person. And as Carol has pointed out oftentimes in some of our other discussions, there's this natural anger between actors and writers as to who is really the more important one. The, the writer, in, in this instance being Green, creates the words, and then the actor turns around and speaks them, and everybody asks the actor what they mean, even if he never had any idea what he was saying. He just says it. But he says it with such conviction that everyone thinks he must be a genius. And of course, the true genius who wrote the words is ignored. And Green was complaining about this situation. And the first time we have him complaining about it, I want to read this to you because while the reference in, in Grotesworth is often read, this one in particular in Francesco's Fortunes is not often read. And you just have to dig into it to understand. But let me read it. Green says, it chanced that Rosius and he, being this person being Green, met at a dinner, both guests unto Archaeus the poet, where proud comedian dared to make comparison with Tully, which insolency he made the learned orator to grow into these terms. Why, Rosius, art proud with Aesop's crow, being pranced with the glory of others' feathers? Of thyself thou canst say nothing. And if the cobbler hath taught thee to say Ave Caesar, disdain not thy tutor, because thou pratest in a king's chamber. What sentence or conceit of the invention of people applaud for excellent that comes from the secrets of our knowledge? Now, Rosius was a famous Roman actor, maybe the most famous of all of them, for his abilities on stage. Of course, you know, you're talking about live actors on live stages without any amplification, and Rosius' voice was huge. He's comparing this actor with that. No one's ever compared Shakespeare to Rosius, mind you. But Ned Allen was well known to be an actor who made a tremendous use of his voice and his physicality, which is why he became famous playing things like Tamburlaine and, and Geronimo in the Spanish tragedy. Other writers, such as Thomas Nash, also compared him to Rosius. And he says, he compares him here to Aesop's Crow, which is the same thing as comparing another unnamed person to an upstart crow. <laughs> and then he goes on to say that everything you say was written for you by someone else, which is what he says in the Grotesworth. So he, what we're realizing is that between the two of these, the shake scene is not a Shakespeare, 
the Sheikh scene is a bombastic actor by the name of Ned Allen. So now we no longer have a Shakespeare on the scene. Now, all the way through 1592, Shakespeare is not present. And frankly, all of the scholars will admit to this missing period in Shakespeare's life. There is no other news that we have of Mr. Willem Shakespeare after he gets married back in Stratford 10 years before. So it remains now even a greater puzzle. Where did he come from and how did he get on stage? How did he become embroiled in this story with Christopher Marlowe? Because he wasn't there when Henry VI was being written. That person that was there, that person that was so annoying to Robert Greene was Ned Allen. Can I just pick up on something, which is a slight digression, but I think an interesting one. The bit in Francesco's fortunes regarding Arwe Caesar in a king's chamber and the cobbler. Arwe Caesar, those lines spoken in a king's chamber, would certainly fit with the, the anonymous play Edward III. Right. Uh, the only writer of plays that we know of, of that era, whose father in this case was a cobbler, is of course Christopher Marlowe. So here we have something that if Green had written, the Glover teaches you to say, Awe Caesar, they would be on it like the proverbial ton of bricks. And this is evidence of Shakespeare. Because it says the cobbler, everybody says, mm, well, maybe it might be another play that was lost, etc., etc., and just shoves it to one side. But in fact, actually, it's a really strong piece of evidence that Edward III was primarily Marlowe's work. And um, Dolly Rate argues this quite strongly, I think, in her book on Alan and Marlowe. So. I wanted to mention that, that it was Dolly Rate who, uh, when I read her book on Ned Allen, this is where I learned this as well about uh, Francesco's fortunes. She did a lot of groundbreaking work, and I would say her book on Ned Allen is really spectacular, not to be missed. But it's interesting that you bring up the Ave Caesar thing, because that's another instance where Francesco's fortunes mirrors or predicts what's going to be said in the Grotesworth. In the Grotesworth, he says, oh, tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide. Now that is a spinoff of a quote from Henry VI, where Queen Margaret, I believe, says to Talbot, oh, tiger's heart wrapped in a soldier's hide. And so this is being said to the person, Talbot, who is being played by Ned Allen. <laughs> and so flip that around and you have a quote that comes from Edward III. Edward III is being here identified by Green as having been written by the cobbler, who is the cobbler's son, who is Christopher Marlowe. So that clears up that question of authorship of that particular play. But it also mimics exactly what happens in the Grotesworth. This is the same series of things that he's accusing Ned Allen of doing in both of those passages. In order for you to assume that he made this complaint in the Grotesworth about Shakespeare, you would have to assume then that he made the same complaint about two separate people. 
one of whom was a very well-known actor named Ned Allen, and the other of whom was completely unknown as an actor, being somehow William Shakespeare. We have no reports of William Shakespeare as being a notable actor shaking scenery in 1593. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Nobody's saying what a great actor. You know, he's somebody, he's not challenging Ned Allen to get to play Tamerlane. That's not happening. No. And what Green is very much doing is complaining that in the theatre, then as now, it's the actors who capture the public imagination. It's the actors who have the big profile. It's the actors who make the big money. Whereas all the, if you like, imaginative and intellectual work is done by the writers. And that's something which persists to the present day. You only have to think of the plot of Sunset Boulevard, where a once major star, the biggest star as she bills herself, has written a truly awful screenplay and coerces a penniless author into rewriting it for her. And some of the lines that the, I forget his name, I always think of him as William Holden character speaks. Robert Greene would have been sitting there saying, yes, of course, yes, that's exactly what I was saying 400 years ago in Grotesworth, because it is. The well, we can, are... we, can, we can make the American comparison too. You mm. probably never saw this particular commercial, but about, I want to say 20 years ago, when the Atlanta Braves were a big, big famous team in baseball, uh, they had a couple of pitchers make a, a beer commercial and it featured uh, two of the uh, pitching stars of the Atlanta Braves, both of whom had won over 250 games each. And they were talking to each other uh, while another star of the Atlanta Braves was taking batting practice and he's hitting the ball out. You know, the pitcher throws the ball an easy one for him and he's batting practice, hitting home runs. And the one pitcher turns to the other one and goes, you know, chicks dig the long ball. He's <laughs> all this time trying to get that thing past that actor. And then bang, you know, he hits it. I set you up, you. <laughs> if I was throwing you a splitter, you'd never hit it. <laughs> well, as we all know, the authorship question is always fraught with all sorts of claims. I just wanted to bring up a point that the Oxfordians, the people who believe that the Earl of Oxford wrote the plays and poems of William Shakespeare, that they say because his crest shows a lion holding or shaking a spear, that he could possibly be a contender for the name Shakespeare. So what do you say to that? Isn't it a javelin? I'm, I might be uh, speaking out of term here, but I have a horrible feeling that the Oxford crest is actually a javelin, not a spear. There's certainly a mention of it that the Oxfordians use, where they basically translate it from the Latin, but it's, oh, the Latin uh, that they refer to uses, uh, my Latin's terrible, tellus, which means javelin, whereas a spear is hasta, and yet they try to conflate the two. It, 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 it's a not spear, it's a javelin. They're different. You know, this is this is yeah. the thing that that just really the weakness in a lot of this, uh, a lot of these alternatives is that they find a specific thing that confirms their bias, and that becomes their proof. But when you follow the chain of the context, it breaks up. 
But and then they ignore all that. So for the Stratfordians, they have Shakespeare and they make this into a reference to Shakespeare. But when you find a parallel complaint being made by the same writer in Francesco's Fortunes, they refuse to even acknowledge that it exists. Well, I want to take this even a step further because the Grootsworth was published posthumously by a man named Henry Chettle. And having printed out the Grootsworth, apparently he had a couple of complaints lodged against it by two separate individuals to whom he subsequently apologized in another pamphlet called Kind Heart's Dream. Now, it's important to remember that Grossworth being published posthumously by Chettle, Chettle was a friend of Robert Greene, and he thought it was important to publish the Grossworth in order to make Greene's final words public because he knew Greene's animosity toward Ned Allen. And that was his motivation for publishing the Grossworth altogether was to make it clear that his friend, Robert Greene, having passed away, should not pass away without having the opportunity to say something nasty again about Ned Allen. But it's interesting because in Kind Heart's Dream, he also attaches an introduction where he explains that he got some complaints from two of the people mentioned in The Grotesworth, one of whom he says... He admires and he reveres his learning. And he says he was very sorry that he printed the Grotesworth because it slandered him and might have got him into trouble. And then the other one, he says, I care not whether I acknowledge him or no. That guy, I don't have anything to say to. He complained to me, but, you know, that's just tough. Now, if we're thinking consistently about what's happening here between Francesco, the Grotesworth, and Kindheart's dream, we're carrying the same message about Ned Allen, starting with Francesco, continuing through Grotesworth, and ending up in Kindheart's dream, who the man who inherited the work from Green, being Chettle, is now confronted by Allen for having printed something negative about him. And Chettle very consistently says, the reason I printed this was because Green didn't like you. And if you don't care for what Green had to say, I don't care about you either. But simultaneously, Chettle, who was a writer, cared very much about Marlowe. And Marlowe was complaining because in The Grotesworth, Green had the tactless statement about Marlowe dabbling with atheism. And of course, Marlowe being in 1592 with the whole Marprelate thing going on, and now the search for atheists being undertaken by Whitgift, he was very sensitive to that. He would have complained, and Chettle apologized to him. Stratfordians reverse this thing and they say, oh no, it's Marlowe that Chettle didn't like. Why? On the basis of what? We have no idea. But it was Shakespeare that he was writing about that he liked. Uh, that Shakespeare's not even there for him to talk about. So when you put that whole thing together, you end up with a consistent storyline all the way through. 
We're not cherry picking our evidence and saying, well, it's this, but it's this. The Stratfordians who want to say Chettle's apology was to Shakespeare, what do they have to say about Francesco's fortunes? Not a thing. They ignore it. They refuse to accept that it even mentions anybody. Yes. When we're talking about whether William Shakespeare was in London prior to 1592, there is one piece of evidence that implies a possibility, and that is in 1589, William um, Shakespeare, along with his parents, John and Mary, was a party to a what we would nowadays call a civil lawsuit connected with a mortgage on a property that had been part of his mother's dowry that they were trying to reclaim. Um, his name was joined with his parents in that lawsuit, which was heard in chancery, I think, might have that wrong in and it started in 1589 and it dragged on forever and ever in a po positively jarndyce versus jarndyce fashion um so it is possible that in 1589 spear william shaksburg came to london to pursue that his father being stuck in stratford in fact actually almost being stuck in the house because he was being pursued for debt and it is just possible in my view that he would, as the Stratfordians have us all believe, called on his old friend Richard Field, now a printer. And we do know that Marlowe did frequent the station's premises in St Paul's churchyard. So it is just possible that is when their paths first crossed. Not in a theatrical context at all, but if certainly if you were writing it as a novel, that I think <laughs> could well. be where the two of them first met. Well, now, wait, wait, let me ask you this, because that yeah. I, that's a question I've had for a long time. What about Shake Bag? Oh, that, in, in Arden, but that was the name of the person who was given back in the in Hollingshead. Oh, or is that Shake Bag or Shake Rag? I can't remember now. But that, that goes back to the Hollingshead source. So it, Shake it, Bag is in, is in Hollingshead? It's in the sort, it's in one of the sources for Arden, definitely. You know, I... I think Blackwell. Both Shakebag and Blackwell are in the source. They I'm weren't gonna, made up for the play. Yeah, um, you're going to have to I'm, uh, point me in that direction because, okay, well, that would certainly explain then where that came from. But it's but it's amusing to have a person named Shakebag who is a conspirator in a murder be the one time that that name shows up. Well, could it not be that Green used it because, after all, Arden was a, a play that he was probably a, aware of, and he used it as an insult almost. He, he's saying that you're you're the same sort of uh, level of villainousness as these uh, low life characters in in Arden. He just saw just the way we say Green. So you're saying Green might have taken Shake Bag and turned it into Shake Scene to throw that at Ned Allen, which, yeah. by the way. You know, this play was performed by the Admiral's men. Ned Allen would have been in the play. Well, yeah, so therefore it's another pointer, perhaps, to him as an actor. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. And meanwhile, what do we have of Shakespeare? But, you know, he's in court, which is what he appears to have done most of his life spent in court somehow. Yeah, but I, I do think you can tentatively say that it is possible that William William Shakespeare was in London for, during 1589 for this lawsuit. I don't know, maybe maybe Field dragged him along to see Tamburlaine. Maybe he saw the play, thought not very much of it, but he was a businessman and thought, 
whoever is running this is making a lot of money out of it. So it is a business opportunity. This, but he would have then sat down and talked to Ned Allen. <laughs> or Henslow, yeah. Or Henslow, yes. You know, the standard, um, the, the orthodox stories, he, he Shatsford, came to London, saw Tamburlaine and wanted to be Marlowe. I think you could also say he came to London, saw Tamburlaine and wanted to be Henslow. Well, that, that is certainly what he seems to have become, was yeah. a version of Henslow, but he didn't leave any books for us to read. So, you know, it's unfortunate that we don't have Shakespeare's handwriting on a document of all the plays done at the Globe. It's possible that he came to court? Is it likely that he had to stay in London all that time? This is a bunch of suppositions about what could or could not have happened on the basis of one mention in a chancery record that... Oh, yes, yes, I, yeah. I agree. But uh, there has to be a point at which William Shakespeare came to London and became involved in the theatre, because... Well, he became involved in the, in the English court system. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and let me throw this out, too, because the whole thing that was going on in Francesco's fortunes is a conversation, the whole references, the references to Tully and so forth, those have to do with Ned Allen presuming that he would have defended Christopher Marlowe in the fight at Hogs Lane that in which Watson, Tom Watson, ultimately killed William Bradley. Now, William Bradley had an argument with Ned Allen's brother and supposedly owed him money. And Ned Allen's brother had taken out an order against William Bradley because he was afraid of him. And so he was to keep his distance. So then Bradley goes looking for Ned Allen. And while he's in the process of doing that, he's also looking for Tom Watson because Tom Watson, his friend, was the lawyer who represented the brother of Ned Allen, who got right. the order against William Bradley. Okay, so there's this tight little group of people that William Bradley is looking to harm. And innocently enough, Christopher Marlowe, who has absolutely nothing to do with any of this, is standing at Tom Watson's door when William Bradley comes along. Bradley attacks Marlowe. Watson shows up, defends Marlowe, kills Bradley, and they both go to prison. And this is all about that time. So when Marlowe is introduced to the court system under a charge of murder or accessory to murder, and Shakespeare is there in chancery trying to deal with a debt that his father owed, well, is it possible that they cross paths? God only knows, you know, but it's a small place, the city where courts are. So there's, you know, that's not impossible to conceive, but what one would have made of the other, you know, hopeless to figure. This is all very interesting and probably ripe for authors with imagination to create all sorts of scenarios in a fictional setting. It's been a really, really interesting conversation, and I really hate to end it, but we are really out of time for this episode. <laughs> To all our dear listeners, do join us again. And in the meantime, don't stop sending us your letters, feedback, and comments as we discover 
what else is hidden in plain sight?